Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The news that Governor David Ige may be moving in another direction when it comes to the Aloha Stadium Entertainment District certainly caught many people by surprise this week. Claire Tamamoto says the IAO community heard about it at a Monday night board meeting, a neighborhood board meeting, when the Department of Accounting and General Services shared an email from Ige's chief of staff, Linda Chu Takayama, that said the governor was rethinking the project uh, with orders to hold off on issuing a request for proposals. Here's Tamamoto. What was the reaction when you folks heard this? Well, we were surprised, concerned, real concerned, just because, you know, I've been doing a lot of community work for many, many years. I felt we were being very sincere about the efforts we were putting forth and bringing people to the table to discuss the needs of the community, the surrounding areas, what we thought would work and not work, what would be culturally acceptable in our area and what we wanted to see for the Aya and the Salt Lake area. And many, many hours of community effort put together and on DAGS's part, taking the communications and getting back to us and having a dialogue. And then to be floored totally unexpectedly without even the stadium authority knowing about it because I also sit on the stadium authority board not knowing anything about it. And a week before, sitting at the IA neighborhood board meeting and none of this was said then. Then all of a sudden to get this email telling DAGS to stop all work and wrap things up and we might go in a different direction, not even being told what that direction was, that leads to a lot of public mistrust. You know, uh, we, because we don't know what's happening. Even if the intentions were good, you know, everything else, the community was led that everything, all the cards were on the table before we were being heard. Well, the word that I'm hearing a lot is blindsided. Yes. But blindsided because why was it necessary? What's the purpose of the blindside? And so that leads to mistrust. That leads to, well, is there something happening that we don't know about? Is there another agenda? You know, that, I mean, I've been doing this for over 20 years, community involvement work, and we've had to fight the reaction of the community saying, well, what for? Why should we participate when they're going to study something and they're not going to listen to us anyway? It doesn't matter. The community doesn't matter. And, you know, IA has been very good about coming to the table and participating, but we're not an area that will, we might have to, we're not an area that might ticket or, you know, file lawsuits. It's just, you know, we've accepted things like when they selected the Halava area for OCCC, we made every effort to be knowledgeable of what was happening, trying to, we learned about things um, regarding um, the, the jail. We already have the prison. So, you know, just the feeling of that, you know, again, we, our voices were, were cast aside, really. You know, the feeling, whether it was true or not, the feeling that they were cast aside. I understand that DAGS only found out about it last week through this email. When did the stadium authority hear about this? We, we have not officially been told. Wow. 
because we meet this coming Thursday and we, we were not even given any notice of this. People say too much knowledge is, is sometimes bad, but you know, we've, we've been waiting for the environmental impact statement since April for it to be moved forward and it got tied up and it was being reviewed by DBED and DBED was saying they're going to do their due diligence. Now DBED now sits on the stadium authority. Once that law was enacted, when the money was turned over, DBED became, you know, the stadium authority got put under DBED. Mike McCarthy became a member of the board. So we did have a, you know, a meeting, a stadium authority meeting after that, and we were told the governor fully is supportive of the stadium being in Halaba, but we have to do our due diligence. Well, I guess it'll be a very interesting Thursday meeting. Hopefully, Mike McCartney will explain what's going on. But what's your greatest fear at this point? Our greatest fear that it will not be developed in a way that will be conducive or with anything given back to the community. That area will not, all the people that live on the east side of the island want to solve the affordable housing problem for the whole island in Ala'aea. And that is not doable. That does not make any community development sense. You know, we have a rail system going through many of our communities. We should be able to spread that out to be able to have, you know, there's, there's parking issues. It's a very congested area. To have a stadium surrounded by affordable housing that's just 200 feet high over is not it's not something that's going to be pleasant to look at it's not it's going to create traffic congestion and that's one of the main issues in the area the infrastructure won't support it the stadium offers the new development offered an opportunity for the community to be able to have community uses for the stadium like have a hawaii cultural museum we have a, a cultural fish pond there we have uh, freshwater springs along um what's called odaya which is kalaau um, we have all these things to offer, the good things to offer that we can you know, have people enjoy in our communities. But, you know, rather than it just being something where it's a just take from the community, like, you know, having a concert, having a stadium, having all the traffic that comes with that, what does that give back to the community? Are you worried that if the UH builds a smaller stadium that, you know, you won't be able to have the entertainment aspect? The whole purpose of the entertainment area it was to be able to generate income so that it wouldn't be a constant, the stadium wouldn't be a constant handoff. And, you know, I think it's a misnomer when people say that um, the university was losing or having to, uh, as it, because it wasn't the owner of the stadium, then it was losing all this revenue. The stadium, the University of Hawaii didn't really pay any lease to use the, the Halawa Stadium, the Aloha Stadium. They did have to pay for things like operations, like if you had to hire security guards and right. all those other things. But they never had to pay a lease rent for it. You know, it's not feasible. I'm a big UH fan. It's not feasible to have our games or to have a world-class attraction where we can support other entertainment or other types of sports at Ching Field. It's just not going to be enough. That was Claire Tamamoto, president of the IAO Community Association and a member of the Aloha Stadium Authority. This morning, we also heard from the Salt Lake Foster Village and Liumanu Neighborhood Board. Chair Chase Shigimasa was also taken aback by the news that the IGA administration was talking about taking the project in a different direction.
We've been working with the New Aloha Stadium Entertainment District team, and to do a sudden change like this at the second, I guess, second month before Governor Ige leaves office, I feel like it's putting rail lines or borders onto what Josh Green or, or, or Duke Iona, whoever becomes the next governor, it's putting a border on whatever they can do. You know, and I, and I feel that it's not right. You know, the governor has not came to the community and ask for community input on this issue. And so I, I'm very surprised that we have, I would say this is like we're in the fourth quarter and the governor takes out the quarterback that's been the quarterback who's been playing an awesome game. So you're scratching your head too. Yeah. What are we doing? We've, we've, we've worked so hard to come this far. And why are we making this sudden change? You know, the administration itself hasn't been too supportive of the stadium project where funding for the stadium, it's been quite some time that we've been waiting for funding. And I understand the DAGs, you know, has been waiting for the word to roll out the RFP. And, you know, they've just been waiting for, I guess, DBED and the governor to uh, to make up their minds. Yeah. And, and, and here's the thing. Uh, the Senate just passed a law and it became, uh, you know, just passed a bill. It came into law that it's moving the stadium project to Department of Business, Economic Development, Tourism. I don't know if it's the right move at this time. And, and I, I would caution the governor to make such a sudden change at the last minute and and that's what that's what's really surprising to me is the last minute to change the stadium to the UH and you know we he hasn't even got the region approval he hasn't even got the stadium authority approval and so just to come in with this crazy idea and tentative agreement at the 11th hour it's just surprising to me well there are folks who are concerned about the housing component you know uh you know, they just see this change as delaying everything, uh, although, you know, the EGA administration seems to think that if they go this route, they can move the stadium along faster. I, I really feel that we're actually going to be starting from scratch. You know, I think we've, we've invested all the money now into the planning. Why make that investment of millions of dollars into planning in the previous legislative sessions that passed the monies to take care of the planning of it if we're now going to move that planning over to UH. Uh, it's we're, I see it as we're, we're potentially wasting tax dollars. Yeah, Claire expressed some concern about, you know, what this delay is costing us. And I, it's going to cost us full amount of money, I feel, that we paid to get this far. And uh, it was that was all for nothing. And so how much more is it going to cost us now if we're on this route, right? What's been the biggest concern for your uh, constituents in your district? The biggest concern for our constituents in our area is that this Salt Lake, we want to be involved in that housing component and what it, what the development will be like. But we've been in works with DAGs for quite some time, Chris Kinimaka and also um, our stadium authority um, director, Ryan Andrews. Uh, they've, they've attended every meeting. They've come to talk to the community and understand you know, and, and understand what the community needs are. And so we would be in a stage where now we're now reintroducing all the new players to the community 
where we've built these years of relationship with these administrators. Well, what's your biggest fear at this point? My biggest fear is that we're going to be reinventing the wheel. You know, we've spent all this time and energy into planning the stadium with the Nualoa Entertainment, uh, Nualoa Stadium Entertainment District team. And we have to now reintroduce ourselves to the new people who may, may take this over because of the tentative agreement. And they don't have the same understanding that these people that we've grown and gained relationships with, the, the communities gained relationships with. How did you learn about the switch? I, I learned by reading an article in the newspaper. Okay. All right. <laughs> and, and I was just as surprised as anybody who's reading their paper over coffee and going, wow, when did this happen? And how long has the governor been planning for this with his team? Because he sure didn't let anybody know. You know, I'm not real clear on, you know, what happens if UH isn't on board with this idea to take over the building of the stadium. Exactly. And, and it's unclear for us, too. You know, and, and to not even have all the approvals from the various organizations that you're trying to create this tentative agreement with, the approval from the Stadium Authority Board, the approval from the Board of Regents, if you don't have that approval, why bring this proposal up at this time? That your, you know, eight years, his eight-year term coming to an end. I don't understand why, why now? You know, and that's my question to the governor. Why now? Why now? He says that this will speed it up. I highly doubt that this will speed it up. It's actually going to put us right back in the beginning where we started. Yeah, I'd be curious to see yeah, how, how long had they been even hatching this idea. The governor has a representative that visits our neighborhood board every month. And at any given point, this could have been brought up to the community that this is something the governor is exploring. But the community has to find out from a news article. So you kept which in the dark. Which is quite troubling. Uh, and you know, I have, I have many, I have lots of questions as to why the governor has taken this action. I, and, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to figure that out. Yeah. Are you planning to be at the Stadium Authority meeting on Thursday? I, I do plan on being there. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Chase. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. You're Alrighty. welcome. Thank you so much, Catherine. Have a great day. Okay. Aloha. You too. Aloha. We've been talking to Chase Shigimasa, the chair of the Neighborhood Board, representing Salt Lake, Foster Village, and Aliumanu. We asked both gubernatorial candidates, Josh Green and Duke Iona, for their thoughts about this latest development. This morning, we were able to talk to former Lieutenant Governor Republican candidate Duke Iona. Whoever wins during the general election will have to see the Aloha Stadium project through. I'm like everyone else. I, I'm kind of scratching my head. Like, what, what is going on? I mean, it's been kind of typical of this administration in regards to, you know, not giving details and just, you know, for communication. So I'm scratching my head. I don't know which way he wants to go. If, if he's pulling the plug on this, then I would... It would be great, uh, whether I'm, I'm the governor or the, my opponent's the governor, that he just let it be done by the next governor, the next administration. Um, it can go either way. But if he is going to do something, 
then I wish he would tell everyone and, and not do what he just did. And, you know, obviously this is not something, uh, it sounds like it's coming top down, you know, just like heavy handed again, coming top down, not discussing this with the, you know, with the, the, uh, the stakeholders who are involved and in particular it's the University of Hawaii. And so I've always said that for me, from my perspective, I believe that a you know stadium on campus would be best for the University of Hawaii. I think the stadium um, that they're proposing, you know, we've had what 40, 50 years of it, and we've seen what it what it has produced. I think it was underutilized. I don't think that it was used properly. But we also saw the, the maintenance of it and how difficult it was to maintain it. We also saw how the capacity of it wasn't, um, you know, really wasn't up to to, I guess, standards that, that the University of Hawaii football team is, I guess, is designed for. So I think a 20 to 25,000 seat stadium on campus would be would be more than adequate. I think it would be perfect for for the, uh, the football that they play. But more importantly, it'll give that college atmosphere that, you know, you, you need for any program at the college level. We just don't have that right now at the stadium. So this is why I'm thinking that's the best the best position. More importantly, it helps with the University of White football team in recruiting. It gives them something definitive. And, you know, I'm hoping that they could build it better. And when I say build it better, I mean on time and on budget. Right now, if you look at where we're at with this, this proposal, we're definitely not on time. Lord knows if we're going to be um, on budget. And, you know, we, we keep shifting, shifting plans like this. So I get into office, definitely we will make a decision as to where we're going to go. And it will be definitive. It will be now. It won't be in a month or two months. We've, we've actually spoken to a lot of people on this. We have enough information. Obviously, you know, all the stakeholders will be involved in, you know, whatever decision is being made. And, of course, we move forward. We have money appropriated. I don't know if that money is, um, you know, I, I don't know how that money, can I put it, uh, how adequate it is or inadequate it is in the scheme of things that are going to be built and proposed. But I do know that there's money appropriated and I don't want to hold that money up if it can be used for other purposes and, you know, be more efficient and, and um, useful and beneficial to the people of Hawaii, then, then that's where it should be. But um, this this is just mind-boggling right now what's going on. So, like I said, scratching my head like everybody else. You know, the university is mum on this right now. We don't know, you know, how far back informal discussions may have been underway. But, yeah, I, you know, the community just seems to be feeling kind of miffed, you know, that right. all their efforts, it, it just seems, uh, you know, the, the feeling of just being disingenuous. And yeah. uh, and and so, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens at the Thursday stadium meeting if, if more information will be forthcoming. You know what this does also, Catherine, it, it, it just delays the project that much longer, you know, and we, you know, time is of the essence here, of course, you know, and in the construction world, time is money. In business world, time is money. Um, and that's that's what's happening. And so when we talk about, you know, we look at all of our, you know, when we talk about inflation and you know, housing costs, etc. This is a prime example of why, why we spend more money and, you know, why we can't stay within a budget. Because when you delay for whatever the reason is, this is what happens. So. And there are concerns about a possible recession. What would that mm-hmm. mean? You know, like you said, the interest rates are going up. You know, and then there's right. also the 
housing component that's just vexing everybody? Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not adverse to that at all. I mean, you know, this whole project could be, um, you know, could be residential as opposed to a mixed use, but a mixed use is good also. But the plans are there. Right, it's just a matter of seeing exactly what's going to happen, and I think the RFPs are supposed to go out this month. Was it this week or this month? I can't remember. Yeah, before the end of this month, but, it was supposed to go out. Yeah. Now we're delayed again. We're delayed. We don't know where we're going. And I'm not so, sure, you know, what's happening with the plan for increasing the capacity of the infrastructure, you know, the, the sewer lines, because the city says that, yes, that area, you know, needs to be upgraded and they have their own timetable. But if the state has other plans, then that money's got to come somewhere. Exactly. Exactly. You hit it, you hit it all on the head right there. All of those contingencies that, that, that are being affected now by just saying, put it on hold, put it on hold. And so I, I'm hoping that whatever whatever he's going to be proposing will be will be definitive, and again, will will address all of these you know these various issues that we just talked about, and, and not not cost any more money. But like I said, time is money, and when you delay something like this, and you say you got another plan, it always affects the um, the bottom line. Well, I would love to be a fly on the wall of <laughs> David Lassner's office well, and yeah. Dave Matlin, and also uh, a Calvert oh. Young. Because Calbert, as the BNF guy, yeah. budget and finance, I mean, he's looking at the numbers. And, and then, you know, I guess there are folks that are wondering, you look at the way that UH was treated as this whole project got underway. I mean, I don't know. You know, so I can think of maybe one scenario that maybe he might be thinking of, but I don't know. You know, he said he wanted it to be done, the one in stadium build as quick as possible. So what I'm thinking is maybe he's going to scale it down and build it at Halawa. But scale it down to right now. I think it's at thirty-five thousand. Maybe might scale it down to twenty, twenty-five thousand. But here's the part that's going to be a little more disturbing: is that it's going to be state, state um, constructed. It's going to be constructed by the state, and it means it's going to be maintained by the state. Or you might say, okay, let's bring in a let's bring a partner in on this, and they will manage the stadium. But if you if you bring the capacity down then that kind of limits what you can do. Well, maybe not. Maybe it won't limit what you can do with that stadium other than football, you know, concerts, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe it won't. I'm not sure. But I think that might be the option he's going on. But he could also be saying, okay, let's take some of that money, but I don't think he can do this because the money's appropriated specifically for that project in Halawa. But, you know, here's some of this money. Give it to UH. Okay, you guys can build right now. But what that does, too, if you're going to expand the UH, that'll shut them down. That'll shut that field down because I don't think you can expand from 9,000 to, let's just say, 20,000 um, because, you know, you want to do it one time uh, within what, when the season ends in what, December. I mean, they're bringing back the, uh, the Aloha Bowl, so that's going to be in January. So you're talking from January to what? And spring training, the spring practice opens up in, in August. I think you can do it in eight months. So I don't think that's what's going to be on, on the plate, but I'm just thinking, you know, to, you know, just top of my head what some of the options might be. So I can only think that the only other thing he's going to do is just scale back, have the state build this directly so you don't go out with an RFP, and and then maybe partner out with some, somebody to, to manage the stadium. So we know where we, what we've done with management of this stadium, right, uh, via the state. 
that's what I'm thinking. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just trying to going to think out loud here. You know, UH does have its own procurement system, so Correct. you can see that, okay, maybe they want them, you know, to move faster. You know, I I guess I'm just trying to figure out, well, okay, how is this going to be attractive for UH? How do you sweeten the pot? Mm, yeah. Yeah, and that's because he said that, right? He says he wants these. This is for the university benefit of the University of Hawaii. But you're right. But I don't know. Like I said, the only thing that can make this attractive for the UH in, in those terms is you, you have a definitive date when that stadium is going to be built, and it happens because UH needs to recruit, and you can't recruit when you're telling your you know four star, five star player, um, you know. We might not have a permanent stadium before you graduate. Okay, so, you know, what's that recruit going to say? I'm going to go to UCLA. I'm going to go to, you know, Notre Dame or wherever it may be, right? So that's, to me, the biggest benefit you could give to the University of Hawaii right now. Just a definitive time and a definitive date and make it happen. And so they can use it for the recruiting and, and also, as you mentioned, their budgeting. That was Duke Iona, Republican candidate for governor, talking about the possible new direction for the Aloha Stadium Entertainment Project. The University of um, Hawaii uh, just issued this written statement to us just within the last uh, hour. According to UH spokeswoman Moani Kealanabaro, it is premature for the university to comment on the recent reports regarding the stadium project. Significant changes to the current project would require a comprehensive review of all potential financial, technical, land use and legal issues. The UH administration would then present a detailed proposal to the Board of Regents for review and appraisal at a public meeting as required for all major capital improvement projects by the university. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. show, we'll be talking with Emmy Award-winning writer Susan Soon-He Stanton. And in the spirit of Hollywood, we want to test your knowledge of Charlie Chan, the fictionalized character based on real-life uh, Honolulu Police Department detective uh, Chang Apana. Author Earl Derbiggers created Charlie Chan in 1920 in his 1925 novel House Without a Key, which led to a series of worldwide hit movies featuring this greatly admired character. You may not know that only one of the Charlie Chan movies was shot in Hawaii. The star was Warner Olin, uh, and the second lead was Bella Lugosi, fresh off his success as Count Dracula. In all Charlie Chan films, memorable words of wisdom linger long after the final shot. In this particular film, Charlie Chan says, Always happens when conscience tries to speak, Telephone out of order. And there's your hint. For today's quiz, what was the name of this movie? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. Pick up a reusable HPR tote bag if you're the first one to get it right.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. Civil Beats Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us this morning for our reality check. It's about a story by Kevin Dayton about the state of our correction center on the island of Hawaii. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine, and happy Aloha Friday to you. Yes, I'm happy it's Friday. (laughs) Uh, So this story today, uh, not a very good one about the situation at the Hilo Jail. No, and I'm covering for Kevin, who, who by the way, uh, mostly works out of Hilo. That's where his home is when he's not down here covering the capital. Uh, but this involves the Hawaii Community Correctional Center, sometimes called HCCC, um, known as the jail in Hilo, the jail run by the state Department of Public Safety. And the reporting in Kevin's story today is pretty disturbing. Some inmates have been packed in because there's just you know no room the capacity has been filled in cases and you'll see people actually sleeping on floors uh kevin notes that some people inmates uh have not been able to post bail even though that bail sometimes is as little as 15 or 30 dollars there's complications in trying to get a hold of that and i think the thing that was most surprising is that um someone described the conditions at hccc as uh similar to Rikers Island in New York City. And if you know anything about Rikers Island or followed any news, that is just a a terribly uh, poorly run uh, incarceration system that is always in the headlines. And so that's pretty shocking, uh, this story that's coming out today. Well, yeah, I mean, just the picture that showed these inmates Mm, sleeping on the floor just made me sad. Right. And we should say this is coming from uh, a presentation that was made to the Hawaii Correctional Systems Oversight Commission. And it's from Kristen Johnson. She is the oversight commissioner. And she was recently appointed by Governor Ige. And and what she's been doing is touring the facilities uh, throughout the state. And in many cases, she's finding out that the facilities and the people in charge are not meeting the minimum legal requirements that are really called for by federal authorities. Anybody read this story on HCCC will see that it's also very similar to things that we've seen at OCCC here on Oahu or or Maui, for that matter, matter, Maui Community Correctional Center. Yeah, and we all saw the trouble there when the inmates basically rioted because of the conditions. Set fires, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So in addition to sleeping on floors, uh, Ms. Johnson has described uh, prisoners that were locked in what are known as dry cells, which is another way of saying they don't have bathrooms. Uh, some of these cells are so old that they're actually secured by padlocks because the original locks have, have, have failed. They no longer work. Uh, and uh, Johnston is also saying, that she was told that uh, the mandated recreation period and visitations are not being allowed in some cases. Well, you know, the the, the sorry condition of these jailhouses, I mean, it's it's nothing new. It didn't it, this didn't happen overnight. Mm, no, it's been long standing. And of course, it's so bad that 
We have so many inmates, so we have to send a lot of them to Arizona at no small price. Johnson herself, by the way, uh, hails from the New York City Board of Corrections. My understanding from Kevin's article, she actually had an office there at Rikers, uh, which, uh, again, it really is probably the worst uh, jail um, in the country. But it wasn't just Johnson. Ted Sakai, remember Ted Sakai? Mm -hmm. He used to run DPS, and and, uh, he helped Johnson go on those tours and agrees that things at HCCC are pretty darn bad. There's there's no real plan in place. Uh, it really needs a complete overhaul in so many ways. I think he mentions in particular the, the medical facilities at the jail in Hilo as inadequate. Yeah, like we haven't heard that before in any of the other centers. Right, and you know a lot of this a lot of this goes down to funding. One one person who commented in the story, uh, very familiar with the system, says, "Look, you know, we go to the legislature every year or so with a request, and we're just not getting what we need." We should say that there have been. Uh, some facilities are remodeled. I think there's some new cells there. And uh, there's uh, plans to get the warden a little advice on how to negotiate the bail issues that are keeping people in there. Uh, but again, one of the takeaways from Johnston is some of the staff doesn't even seem to be aware of these very same federal mandates. Sometimes they've come from federal consent decrees, right? Mm-hmm. They're not even aware of those mandates and, and, and what they should be doing to properly take care of these inmates. Yeah, but I'm sure it's very uh, frustrating for the public safety staff when, you know, year after year they ask for more money and and they don't get it. Yeah, exactly. Good story from Kevin Dayton today. All right. Thank you so much, Chad. Sure. That was uh, Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Uh, To read Kevin Dayton's story, head to civilbeat.org. for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Island Community Health Center, providing medical, dental, and behavioral health care services island-wide. Learn more at hicommunityhealthcenter.org. It's time to give aloha. This month, when you shop at Foodland, Second Save, or Foodland Farms, please consider making a donation to Hawaii Public Radio. Every September, Foodland's Give Aloha program matches a portion of donations made to participating nonprofits like HPR at checkout. For more info, visit hawaiipublicradio.org slash givealoha. Mahalo. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Native Books and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. for season four of the HBO Max series Succession is currently underway. The show won multiple Emmys in its first three seasons, including Outstanding Drama Series in 2020 and the and at the Emmy ceremony earlier this month. Um, Susan Soon-He Stanton is a writer and producer on the show. She grew up in Aiea and graduated from Punahou School. Her plays have been performed at Kumukahua Theater and the Hawaii Shakespeare Festival. She also wrote the short film Dress, which won the audio 
Audience Award at the 2013 Hawaii International Film Festival. The Conversations, Russell Subiano sat down with Stanton to talk about winning an Emmy and what it takes to succeed in the entertainment industry. And the Emmy goes to... This is amazing. Succession! Describe what that night was like. What was going through your mind at the time that you got the award? It's really surreal. The entire evening is surreal. You look around and you just see very famous people left and right. And it's the last award of the evening. And so... I don't know. I mean, it's so much work, but you almost just sort of want it for the team. Just, you know, I, I don't know. It's it's really amazing to be part of something. And so I think I was like, oh, gosh, I really hope we get it. But it, it also just felt like such a, a stiff category. There are so many amazing shows yeah. in it. So I thought we had a chance, but I also really didn't think we were going to win. And then when it happened, it was yeah, just very surreal. And then it was just kind of like, don't fall on the way up to the stage. Right. And just being really yeah. just happy for everyone and yeah it was very strange to be up on stage that's for sure as i was watching the ladies going up the stairs that was one thought that crossed my mind too was like oh somebody better hold on to them those dresses are long yeah i was doing the don't do a jennifer lawrence like yeah. don't don't fall on the stairs and uh, lucy preble who's another writer on the show with me we were kind of arm in arm we were like i think we were just walking really closely both because we were elated and also it was like maybe we will continue to stand upright if we are holding on to each other during the acceptance speech how did you become a writer on succession i think i read somewhere that you had submitted a play and they hired you based on a play that you had written I mean, it's such a long road to become a professional writer. I started as a playwright. I started playwriting here. And that was my transition from playwriting into doing television writing. And I had been trying to get a job in TV for a number of years. TV just kept getting more and more interesting. But I was still based in New York. And when I would fly home to Hawaii... I would stop over in L.A. and do the water bottle tour and just start to meet people. And so I met some folks at HBO and they became familiar with my work. And so they kind of had me in mind for something possibly. And then this felt like the right fit in certain ways. It was a hybrid of comedy and drama. And so I think they thought, oh, well, maybe Jesse Armstrong, the showrunner, might be interested in, in your writing. And the play that got submitted premiered at Kumakahua. It was hashtag I'm bad at this or I've retitled it today is my birthday. And so the play is set in Honolulu. There's Hawaiian in the play. There's there's pigeon in the play. There's a lot of really funny and very specific Hawaii references. So I'm really proud that something that I set in Hawaii still felt universal and on the level high enough for him to to like it as a writing sample. And then we got to meet over Zoom and chat. And then about two weeks later, I had moved to London and was part of that writing room. So it was an extremely quick process between getting the job and then visas. And I was teaching full time at a university. I had to leave my students mid-semester, much to my uh, chagrin and horror, but also it was still just a life-changing opportunity. And I've been a part of it from the very beginning and now we're shooting season four so it's been a really wild ride i just watched dress and what captivated me about the film was that it, this fresh take on the grief process amongst the father and, and his sons and it seems to me that many of your works focus on unusual relationships or unique versions of familiar relationships how do you want people to see you as a storyteller I think I'm very interested in stories that involve 
home in different ways, but also the German word for uncanny is unheimlich, which means unhomelike is uncanny. And so it's mixing together the familiar with the deeply unfamiliar. And I think of that as a displaced person in some ways where Hawaii is very much my home. But I'm also, you know, Kama Aina, I'm not Hawaiian and figuring out that place and also being Hapa and then spending half my life now mostly in New York, but always coming back and just trying to figure out what that identity is through writing. And I think also just becoming like growing up in an island where Hawaii is geographically one of the most isolated places in the world. And so I think it makes you tell stories differently. I think even the different kinds of mythology and aspects of Hawaii makes it a really special place. So I I don't know, but, but some of those things, I'm also, I really love different kinds of forms surrealism but also things that feel familiar and so I like playing with I suppose different layers where you can have a build and it makes an audience think about the world in a different way or see something a little bit differently but having a very deep emotional core you know rooted in tragedy or comedy I'm very interested in things that are both you know the the funny dramas are something that I'm always seeking out because I think something that's only one or the other, if it's a comedy and you don't feel enough or it's a drama, but it's just too, too serious. Then I, I, I really feel like life is built up from all these different kinds of moments. It's more of a chocolate box. I can definitely see that in your work that you don't really sit at the extremes of anything. you you kind of find this nice path through kind of the middle of a lot of things. And especially when it came to dress, it seemed very familiar, but very fresh as well. Dress won the audience award at HIF, which was a mm-hmm. huge honor. And I wrote that with directed and acted by Henry and Cusick. And one thing we also talked about is a man who's from Scotland and doesn't really belong in Hawaii, but then fell in love with a Hawaiian woman and has Papa Hawaiian kids. And so in some ways, it's like he doesn't have a place there. And yet his kids are and he's somebody who worked a lot and didn't really know how to be a parent. And so he's he's trying to find his connection to his island, his connection to his boys and just trying to do right in whatever way he can. But it's also a struggle while somebody is just deeply mourning and trying to hold it together for losing the woman that he loves. What's happening to you? This helps me and John get through what it is we're going through. And you tell me what it is we're doing that is so wrong. You what's wrong? You impersonating your dead one? I'm not impersonating my wife. Are you boys gonna let go? Just let it. I see Cole. I see him in my house every day. He misses his mother. And he needs his father. Which one do you want to be? Here you are, I am. I am the father. I am the father. Okay. You have no idea what we're going through. I know that when you write something and it gets produced and it gets presented to the world, there's always a piece of view or your past experience that ends up in the script somewhere or ends up in the character somewhere. Do you have a story about something that happened in some of your life experience that maybe made it on the screen to succession? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> on succession? Uh, um, hmm. 
I was in a writer's retreat that was set in, takes place in Texas in real life. I was on our writer's retreat and they had next door, there was a corporate hunting retreat and it was like shooting deer in a barrel. They had a salt lick and then a hut and then a, you know, I didn't see it actually in process. And so we'd always tell stories and it was something where I observed these sort of businessmen hunting. And so that story partially became an inspiration for Boar on the Floor mm-hmm. in season two of just what do these sort of corporate people do for their retreats for Kendall's birthday party. My brother went to Burning Man once and he had come up with an installation with his friends. So the compliment tunnel comes directly from my brother and his friends where you walk through a tunnel and people compliment you. Shall we try the compliment tunnel? Sure. Could be nice. Why are you so happy? Me? Yeah. Oh, well, uh, actually, because I, uh, I, I met the most wonderful girl in the world. You're just fantastic. Yes, I am. Amazing. I mean, it's possible she's only going out with me due to, you know, rancor or pink. You're so full of grace. What's that? I think he said you're full of grace. That's a weird thing to say. There's probably lots of other smaller or larger moments from the show, but those are the first two that come to mind. There's some productions wrapping up here. I I know Jason Momoa has his Chief of War series that's that's coming, and and there's been more and more. I saw, yeah, yeah, pretty it cool. Looks yeah. So good. Yeah. I saw. I had a talk with somebody from Apple, and I got to see a little clip of it. Ah, it's just like, my gosh, it looks so beautiful, and yeah. I'm just really excited about it. Yeah, it's it's very exciting, and, and as we see more and more productions about Hawaii, and, and maybe not even necessarily about the Hawaiian experience, but about the Asian experience here, and 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 other ethnicities here. Do you think that the future holds more opportunities to tell stories about Hawaii? I hope so. And I also think so. I think for, for too long, Hawaii is just the backdrop. And I also think that what's being built in Hawaii, there's more practitioners of various sorts. You know, I mean, there's Hawaii films like I Am a Simple Man and mm-hmm. Alika's films that are going to Sundance, these major festivals that... I think things are being built and places can come to Hawaii and have a great crew where there's people that are becoming or growing number of people that are just excellent where Hawaii is a place where films can happen. I think that when I go to LA, I just had a bunch of meetings and people are much more amenable than they used to be for stories that are set in Hawaii and hopefully from a more Hawaiian and also local point of view, you know, I mean, there were some stories that were told in White Locust, but the focus is still visitors. And so finding stories that are really created from people from Hawaii and finding and finding ways to do that. But I really do feel like it's it's coming and it's happening. It always feels like it takes longer than it should. You can make an excellent film on an iPhone these days. So there are also more tools available. You don't have to go through the same limited channels and get the sticker of approval from the same few people. I mean, that's still an aspect of it, but there are just more channels towards getting what you create out there, which I feel like is very exciting. And you don't have to necessarily leave. You can stay in Hawaii. You don't have to move to LA or you can visit and come back and have Hawaii be the place where you're just constantly working and creating things, which never used to be possible. So that's something that I keep hoping for and try to be a part of if I can. That's good to hear from your perspective as a writer and a producer. What's been the biggest factor for you in being able to achieve the level of success that you've been able to achieve so far? I think it's just really finding something that you love, which for me was writing and being able just to stick at it, even when it gets really hard. 
heard yeah. Ira Glass has advice that he gives, you know, where it's like there'll be a long period of time where your taste will be better than what you can create yourself. And even though it's painful not to give up and just to keep working on your craft until the two become closer together. And that's something I think about. I also think about how long it can take to make it where you just have to keep working at something until you can't be denied anymore because it can be a very, very long road. And just to be ready with a writing sample or something when the opportunity happens, I think it's less about networking in some ways. And you have to kind of do everything, but I think it's less about networking and more about really focusing on becoming excellent at what you do. And then when you have something you're really proud of, then trying to get it into the right places. Yeah. Yeah. Success. You got to put a lot of hard work and a lot of, a lot of time and effort into it, but just be good. Yeah, be good and also be nice. Like, don't be a jerk. I feel like a lot of it's being excellent, being good, but also be somebody that other people want to be in the room with you. Because <laughs> yeah. if you're intolerable and some weird diva, it's like, yeah, I don't want to be in a room with them for 15 hours a day on set. Like, that's a huge thing as well. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time, Susan. Thank you for having me. That was Emmy Award-winning producer Susan Soon He Stanton talking with HBR's Moses Subiano. Stanton grew up on Oahu and is a writer and producer on the HBO series Succession. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii. For decades, HBO has met TV that pushes the envelope. They were the original Netflix. They were a disruptor in this space, willing to sort of come in at a time when prestige and television were not synonymous. But now that HBO's parent company has merged with Discovery, that might be changing. How HBO transformed television and what the future of prestige TV might look like. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon, following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, open daily, offering original art and gifts by Hawaii artists, including paintings, jewelry, clothing, and more. Also online at magnolia-hawaii.com. Backyard. We were in the film vaults looking for the only surviving Charlie Chan film, which starred Warner Olin as the fictionalized counterpart to real-life HBD detective Chang Apana. The 1931 episode, the only one filmed almost entirely on location in Hawaii, includes shots of landmarks like the Royal Hawaiian Hotel, then a brand new property, and the still-open natatorium pool. Today's audiences may cringe at the ethnic stereotyping in the Charlie Chan films and that a German actor played Charlie Chan, but the character's subversive elements made him popular with Chinese audiences of the time. 
Chan never loses his cool or his sense of humor. He's treated with respect by his fellow cops, and he's always the smartest guy in the room. All reasons why his appeal continues to endure. The Black Camel also featured co-star Bella Lugosi, and uh, that was the answer we were looking for, and we had no winners today. But that's today's quiz. If you have a question to share, you can send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. That's it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we hope to learn more about the stadium project. What do you think? Call or talk back line. Leave your comments. 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can listen back to our shows on the conversation page of the HPR website. Our program is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Subiano, and Lillian Song. And our newest team member is Stephanie Hahn. Backyard quiz theme was written for us by John DeMello and our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.